Will you turn with me to uh, Psalm 120? Psalm 120. I have heard rumors that uh, from some of uh, you women that this past week your husbands have come home and said, Oy vey, the sun fell out of the sky this week. So I can tell that these, uh, these psalms are having their uh, impact on you. Uh, Psalm 120 is, uh, at first glance, a, a very unremarkable psalm. Uh, in the sense that uh, it's difficult to know how to remark upon it. It's very brief. It only has seven verses. Uh, it's not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. The first time you read through it, it doesn't seem to have any uh, startling uh, insights into, into life. Uh, there are no laws in the psalm. Walter Kaiser says that that little uh, notation in the uh, in the side uh, margin of the psalm, Selah, probably means, uh, mm-hmm, think about that. Uh, that's uh, possible. No one knows exactly what that, uh, what that notation means, but it's, it's not found in this particular psalm. Uh, this is not a very lyrical psalm. It doesn't have uh, pictures analogies that we can relate easily to. As a matter of fact, it ends on a rather sour note. It ends in an impasse. Uh, the psalmist says, everybody around me wants war, and I want peace. Uh, this is a, uh, what scholars call a lament psalm, because the psalmist uh, complains. There are a lot of psalms like that. Uh, the psalmist complained a lot. It's all right to complain, as long as you complain to God. Don't complain to your husband or wife or your kids. Uh, To do that is to be like the children of Israel, who were complainers from beginning to end. But it's all right to complain to God. Uh, I heard a story once about a monk who was uh, part of a silent order. And at the end of every year, they were permitted uh, to make one, uh, one statement. So this uh, little monk went to his prior, and the first year he said, hard beds. And then he went back to his cell and maintained his silence for the next year. And uh, the next time he came back, he said, bad food. And then the third year he came back and he said, cold rooms. And they threw him out because he was always complaining. (laughs) Now, uh, Uh, God is not like that. You can complain to God. It's all right. Like Job, you can take your your complaint straight to God, and uh, he'll not rebuff you. There are many psalms like that. There there are laments. The the, the psalmist cries the blues. As he he says in this psalm, woe is me. He he uses that term that uh, they used last week. Oh, yeah, he says. Oy vey. It's it's bad all around me. And uh, that's all right. But the thing that's unique about this psalm, somewhat unique, there are some other psalms like this, but uh, the thing that makes it unusual is is that the lament comes at the end. Normally you have the lament and then a petition, and then after the petition you have uh, the resolution of it or the confidence section. But uh, the thing that sets this psalm apart from most of the other lament psalms is that it concludes with a lament. Woe is me, he says. Apparently it's the lament that's most important. That's what he wants to leave ringing in our, in our minds, resonating in our hearts. This is the most important thing about the psalm, is the lament. 
Now, you'll notice that the title of this psalm says this is a song of ascents. A-S-C-E-N-T-S, song of ascents. And uh, there are 15 of these psalms that are so designated. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And uh, you might raise the question, what on earth is a psalm or a song of ascent? Well, the, the title just means a song for going up. And uh, most people are agreed that these were songs that were sung on your way up to Jerusalem. These were pilgrim songs. So it's you men that have been in the military remember the songs that you used to sing while you were marching to keep you going. This is somewhat like that. Uh, not exactly, but somewhat like that. <laughs> if you remember the words of the songs you used to sing. Uh, but it's the same sort of thing. Uh, three times a year, Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem and take their families, and they had a feast and a festival, and they sacrificed in a great time of fellowship together around the Lord of the temple. And apparently these were the songs that were sung on the way up. These are songs to get you up and get you going. Now, we don't make pilgrimages today, at least not pil pilgrimages to uh, Jerusalem as, as ancient Israel did. But we still make a pilgrimage in our heart to the Lord. And the way I view these psalms today is that these are psalms to help you draw near to God. There are times in everyone's life when you, your heart is cold and you feel far from the Lord and, and uh, you're enmeshed in the world and imbued with the thinking of the world and you just don't know how to get back to God. Well, these are great psalms to read at a time like that. These are psalms to get you up and get you going. And uh, this one is particularly interesting because it's the first of the pilgrim psalms. And uh, in my mind, it's the place to begin. If you're feeling cold-hearted this morning and indifferent toward the things of God, this is the psalm to read to get you up and to get you going and to draw you back to God. Now let's, uh, let's take a look at the psalm. Verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Great word of confidence. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Distress is that word that we've looked at three times over the past three weeks. It's the word that means to be besieged. When I'm in a jam, when I'm in a tight spot, when I'm encircled, when everything seems to be against me, I call on the Lord. Now, uh, various uh, translations treat the verb tenses in different ways. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it translates in the past. I called upon the Lord and he answered me, as though this is some uh, action that the psalmist took in the past. If you have a New International Version, it translates in the presence. I call upon the Lord and he answers me. And you, you might ask, what, you know, what's going on? Can't these translators read the Bible? Don't, don't they know how to translate the scriptures properly? Well, the problem is that Hebrew verbs are very, very odd. Uh, we uh, Westerners are used to thinking of... of discrete units of time, past, present, and future. Uh, the Semites didn't think that way. Arabs, Jews, people who lived in Assyria and Babylon, they, they had a different concept of time. Kipling said east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. And to a, to a certain degree, he's absolutely right. That's an entirely different culture. And these people were not time conscious as we, as we are. In Hebrew, you only have two verb tenses. A thing is either complete or it's incomplete, and that's all they cared about. 
And uh, this particular verb tense indicates an action that's complete. Now, it can refer to something in the past, but more often than not, it's a state of mind. And that's why the New International translates, I call on the Lord and he answers me. It's a philosophy of life that he's talking about. When I'm in a jam, he says, I don't take to my bottle. I don't take to my bed. I don't smoke dope. I don't uh, even take off for the hills to get away from it all. I call upon the Lord, he says. That's where I, that's where I find my greatest resource, is calling upon the Lord. Now, his petition is uh, supplied in verse 2. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Now, he says, that's something I pray all the time because I'm surrounded by liars. They're all people are trying to con me. They're trying to put me on. They're trying to deceive me. It's happening all around me. Save me, Lord, he says. And the word means rescue. Deliver me from those that are telling me lies. And there are a lot of Hebrew words for lying. There must have been a lot of liars in the world back then because they have about a half a dozen words to describe lying. But this means to, to say something that is utterly contrary to reality. Uh, it's an interesting use of this, uh, of this verb in, in the book of Jeremiah. There was a time in Jeremiah's life when the Babylonians encircled the city of, of Jerusalem, and it looked like it was all up with them. And, and uh, there was a momentary reprieve. The Egyptians uh, attacked the Babylonians, and so they had to withdraw from the city for a while. And Jeremiah took, uh, took uh, that occasion to slip out of the city under cover of darkness and go look at a piece of land that he'd bought up in Benjamin. It's just uh, in the land of Benjamin. It's sort of a long story. And I told told you the story when we studied the book of Jeremiah. He bought a piece of land when everybody else was trying to sell theirs as a sign to Israel that they would come back to the land. I mean, the craziest thing to do is to buy a piece of land when you know you're going to lose it the next week. But he went out and bought it uh, as a confirmation of, of God's promise to Israel. So he goes out to look at his land. And as he's sneaking out of the Benjamin Gate in the middle of the night, the guard catches him. And he says, where are you going? And Jeremiah says, I'm going out to look at my piece of land. And the guard says, no, 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 I know what you're doing. You're going to defect to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah says, that's a lie, he says, and he uses this word. It didn't do him any good. They beat him up anyway and threw him in prison. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, what he's saying is, it, what you accuse me of is utterly contrary to fact. And that's the word that's used here. I'm surrounded by people that are telling me lies all the time. I am too. They tell me that if I drink a certain kind of beer, uh, I can rip helmets apart and smash uh, glass backboards, and I can be a real man, drive Formula 2 cars and all sorts of things. <laughs> That's a lie. It takes more than a can of Coors to make a man out of you. You know that. <laughs> they tell me if I make enough uh, money, I can be utterly, totally fulfilled. That's what uh, Newsweek called uh, a couple of weeks ago, transcendental acquisition. <laughs> you uh, acquire enough things, you can be godlike. Or you can receive the fulfillment that only God can give. Uh, they tell me that if I smoke their cigarettes, I can have the taste of success. That's not true. The, the things taste awful. 
And uh, besides that, I think I already have cancer, so why should I? Uh, I don't really. I'm just kidding. Why, why, why should I do what they tell me? But they keep, they keep coming at me over and over again telling me if I buy their, their stuff, if I buy their product, I buy their junk, I can be fulfilled. I can be satisfied. It's a lie. Isn't true. I ran across the most incredible advertisement a few weeks ago. I won't tell you who it is, but it's a particular outfit that's fairly well known. Uh, to the collector, a piece of uh, whatever this thing is, is more than a drinking vessel, more than a vase, a decanter, a lamp, more than a family heirloom. It is an incentive to lose weight, to win forgiveness, a way to attract a lover, to symbolize hope, to fulfill a dream, to hail the seasons, to raise spirits, to diminish melancholy, to mark events, to start traditions, to end the day. It is a noble rite of passage, born of the breath of man. You get that? Born of the breath of man. It is life's child. Now, can you believe that? That's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, I don't know if this is tongue-in-cheek or not. Perhaps it is. But it's the sort of thing that's being promised in the world. But it's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. You know, most of us uh, start out in life thinking that if we just uh, can get the right kind of education, then we'll be satisfied. And so we get it. You get a bachelor's degree and somebody tells you you don't know enough, so you have to get a master's degree. And then you get that and they say you still don't know enough and you still feel kind of empty, so you go to get a Ph.D. You know what Ph.D. is, piled higher and deeper. <laughs> and now you have a Ph.D. in butterfly wings and, uh, and you still are unsatisfied and empty. And there has to be something more. So then they tell you, well, what you need is to get married. That will satisfy you. Being single is the worst thing that can happen to you. You have to find someone to love you. And so you do. And that isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I have a great marriage. But you know, you know, there, it, it doesn't satisfy you. And then you, you, they tell you, well, what you need is children. So you have children. And they don't satisfy you. And then they tell you that money will satisfy you or achievement in your career, your vocation will satisfy you. And you get to the top of the pile and you have everything that you want and you don't want anything that you have. And you just feel empty and, and unsatisfied and you realize, as uh, Linda Ronstead says, I've been lied to. And, and you see, that's what the psalmist is talking about. I live in a world, he says, where people are lying to me right and left. Deliver me, he says, from these liars. Now, uh, the next stanza is the confidence section of, of the psalm. What will he do to you? That is, what will God do to you? And more besides, O deceitful tongue, he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom tree. And that's one of those uh, ancient eastern references that doesn't make a bit of sense to us unless uh, someone explains it to us. They used to temper the points on their arrows by using uh, wood, coals from broom tree. Uh, broom tree is a very hard wood, makes a very hot fire. And they would temper the points of their arrows uh, in that fire, pound them out, and sharpen them. So uh, 
uh, an arrow sharpened by coals from a broom tree was a particularly powerful weapon. It was a superior weapon. It was the weapon of heroes, as, as the text actually puts it, sharpened arrows of a hero. Uh, what he's saying, really, is that he's going to let God take care of him. He can't answer all these lies. He's no way he can, there's no way he could put a stop to it. Uh, there's no way he can stop the arrows. They penetrate his defenses all the time. It looks like Don Knotts, you know, in that movie when he, he was an Indian hunter and he comes in with arrows sticking out of him in all directions. And that's what we look like. We go out into the world in the morning intent upon defending ourselves from those kinds of lies and we come in in the evening looking like a pincushion. We're shot at right and left. We hear it in the office. We hear it on the streets. We see it on television. People telling us that nature is all that there is, nothing more. And that man is simply the most highly developed component in nature. Did any of you see that segment on 2020, or maybe it was 60 Minutes last week, on the anti-vivisectionists? Those that are distressed about the use of animals for, uh, uh, for uh, scientific investigation to, to do research on. And leaving behind the issue of how you feel about... Uh, about that sort of thing. The thing that struck me about that entire discussion is that no one could explain why men and women are any better than animals. They didn't have any answer. The only answer they had is that we're king of the jungle. We're smarter, we're stronger, and therefore we rule. That's a, if you think about it for a moment, that's a might-makes-right philosophy of life, which has all kinds of problems in it has nothing to do with morality. It's just the stronger, more intelligent rule, even if they're dead wrong about what they think and what they do. It's a terrible philosophy of life. And yet they couldn't come up with anything better. The man's just, just a part of nature, most highly evolved part of nature, but there's no reason, no good reason, why he should, his life should be spared and an animal's uh, taken, or, um, or vice versa. See? Nature is all there is, and we might as well live for the here and now. There's nothing beyond death. You just die. So enrichment of life now and fulfillment of life now is what matters. And science is the only tool that we have to investigate life, and religion is just a hindrance. It plays no part. God is nowhere. See, that's what we're, we're being hit with that all the time in subtle ways. And... Uh, Psalmist says, I can't protect myself. I can't defend myself. I, I, I come in, in the in every evening, shot full of holes. God, you've got to protect me. Your error, arrows, he says, are superior. They're a hero's weapons. And I'm going to count on you to defend me. And then, uh, as, I, as I put it before, he, he ends with this lament section. Whoa, he says. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, alas, he says, that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace. I'm peaceful, he says. But when I speak, they're for war. And he leaves that, that uh, lament ringing in our, in our ears. Now, uh, it would be impossible to live in both Meshach and and Kedar at the same time. So we know that these 
this, these references are emblematic. They're symbolic of something else. If you had a map of the ancient world, Meshach would be about as far north as you could go in the civilized world. Way up north, southern Russia, actually. Area around the Black, Black Sea. The Muskoi, they were called. As a matter of fact, Moscow, the word uh, Moscow, the, the name of the city, may come from this tribe, although they're a bit farther south. Uh, these were very warlike but very wealthy people. It's interesting. You know the story of King Midas in Greek, uh, in Greek literature. Midas was a king of the Muscoi. Uh, a very powerful, very wealthy man. The story of the Midas touch comes from that story. Uh, everything Midas touched turned into gold. You know, and then he touched one of his children, and it turned in, into gold, which is an interesting uh, uh critique, really, on having the, the Midas touch. You eventually destroy the things that you love the most. But that story came out of, the, out of this region. Very wealthy, powerful, warlike people. The uh, literature of the Assyrians and the Babylonians indicate that they were scared to death of the Muscovites. They, they had border fortresses on their northern border to hold them off. Afraid of them. Powerful people. And then the Keterites lived way down south. That was the southern extremity of the civilized world, way down the tip of the Arabian Peninsula. They were Arabs. That's interesting. Uh, Arab historians trace uh, Muhammad's descent through the Keterites, from Abraham to Ishmael and then down through, uh, through Keter. And they also were a very powerful, wealthy people. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, the Old Testament indicates that one of the marks of Tyre's prowess as traders is that they could out-trade the uh, Keterites. Now, since he's referring to two geographical areas, a long distance from each other, I'm convinced that he's using these expressions in a symbolic way. He's talking about living in the middle of people who are wealthy and, and who are powerful, and he can't get away from them. Anywhere, everywhere you go, that's what you see. And that's what we see around us in the world today. Wealth and, and power rules and, uh, and, and cruelty. A, a kind of ruthless approach to life that what matters is, is me. Someone told me they saw a t-shirt the other day that had inscribed on it, uh, uh, what about... Nuclear warfare, question mark, what about my career? Uh, that's the sort of thing that we see, a, a preoccupation with ourselves and with our own self-aggrandizement, our own enrichment, people running roughshod, ruthlessly over others to get what they want. Newsweek magazine had an interesting article on the yuppies a few uh, weeks back. And uh, they report the testimony of a, what they referred to as a converted social worker. Uh, she said, I realized that I would have to make a commitment to being poor, uh, to work with the poor. Eventually, I was able to shed the notion that to prove to anybody that I was a good person, I had to parade around as a good person by being a social worker. And Newsweek comments, now with her lawyer, lawyer husband, she makes 200000 per year without any worries about goodness. Uh, here's another about a woman who, who was 
scheduling a number of interviews during her honeymoon. Did any of you see that <coughs> comment? That was incredible. During her honeymoon, she was interviewing with some prospective employers, and uh, she found uh, an employer that she liked better than her husband. And so she went back home on her honeymoon and divorced her husband and married the interviewer because, as she put it, there comes a time when you have to look after yourself. Now, this is, this is the world around us. Uh, as Jesus put it, because of uh, the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. When mothers can murder their unborn children without any sense of responsibility or guilt, when people can run other, over others ruthlessly without any concern or compassion, something has gone wrong with the world. But that's the world we live in. The world is full of uh, uh, people from Meshach and, and from Kedar, wealthy, powerful people who could care less about others. And that's why the psalmist says, I have had it. Too long, he says, have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. He's sick and tired of, of, the, of the cruelty and the lack of compassion of people around him. Now, I don't know if, if that's the way you feel about the world, but, but very often. That's the way I, I feel about my world. People are lying to me all the time, and people do not care about me, and they do not care about others. And I just get sick and tired of it. And that's why the psalmist says, too long. I've been here too long. And that got him up, and that got him going. You know what living in a, in, in a world where people lie to you and where cruelty abounds will do to you? If you think about it seriously, if you take the state of things around you seriously, it will give you an appetite for God. Nothing will drive you back to God faster than living in a world like that. Believe me, there is nothing out there. Now, we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to love those that are in the world. We're not to hate them. We're to realize that they are victims of the enemy, not the enemy. We are to give witness to them. We're not to retreat or run from it. But nevertheless, it ought to make us sick in the pit of our stomach to live in it and to be a part of it. And what that does, that sickness does, is give us an appetite for God. That's what gets us up. And that's what gets us going. That's what causes us to start drawing near to God. I find that summertime is a hard time to draw near to God. So many things that compete. So hard to get up in the morning because it's so hard to go to bed at night. You know, when it's light until 11 o'clock, who wants to go, or 10.30, who wants to go to bed? So you stay up later, more things to do, and you don't get up in the morning, and you don't spend any time with God. And you forget that you even know Him. And after a while, you find yourself buying the lies and the emptiness and the unsatisfied state sets in. And then you start hungering again for God. That's the time to take to the road. Take a hike. Go on a pilgrimage. Be a walking man. Uh, remember James Taylor's uh, song, Walking Man? 
That goes way back for us old geezers. Uh, Taylor actually took that song from Henry David Thoreau's uh, essay, The Walking Man. He's got a couple of great lines in there. Uh, Living in uh, quiet desperation with his eye on the holy land. Uh, seeking a hypothetical destination. Who is that walking man? Well, you know, Taylor's not a Christian as far as I know, and he doesn't really understand, although I enjoy his music. And and Henry David Thoreau didn't know God, although I I like to read his stuff. But, uh, and and of of course, we're not seeking a hypothetical destination. We know what our destination is. It's God. But uh, are we on the way? That's the thing. Are, are you are you on your way back to God? He he hasn't uh, he, he hasn't withdrawn from you. He's waiting for for us to come back. The question is, are we willing to draw near to Him? Psalm eighty four has a a very helpful analogy. Perhaps we should read that psalm. Uh, I was going to quote a part of it, but we've got time to read. The portion I was thinking of, verse 5, Psalm 84, 5. Blessed are those, I'm reading verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their heart on pilgrimage. Now that's an attempt on the part of the translators to try to translate a very difficult phrase. The phrase just reads in Hebrew, In whose heart are the highways. And the word that he uses for highways is a word that we would use for I-84 in contrast to some of these backcountry four-wheel drive roads. Most of the roads in ancient Israel were just tracks through the wilderness. But there were some highways that were, that were built with cobblestones. And that's, that's the word that he uses here. Mesalot means a highway. Blessed is the man in whose heart is a highway. Highway where? Highway to Zion. You have to supply that is, there's a beaten track in your heart back to the Lord. Just blessed is the man who has set his heart on pilgrimage or in whose heart are the highways. Do you realize that all of us that know the Lord Jesus have a highway in our heart back to God? All we have to do is, is get on the road. That's all. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. Baka means weeping in Hebrew. Even though you go through those desolate times when you, uh, when people are lying to you and people are deceiving you, you're galled and beguiled by what they have to say. And even though you live in the midst of people who, who are ruthless in their pursuit of enrichment and enjoyment, even though you pass through the valley of Baka, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. May I suggest that if you are feeling empty and unsatisfied and you're tired of the lies that you start your pilgrimage, that you get on the road back to God, all you have to do is want it a lot. Enthusiasm is, is the key as the psalmist puts it in another place, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Do you want it? That's the first step. Second step is to is to spend time with God. 
Just get out the scriptures. Perhaps you haven't read them much this summer. Get them out. Find a nice, quiet, private place where no one will bother you at, at a time of the day when you're at your best. And spend time reading the Word, not just to try to understand the Word and study the words, but as the hymn writer puts it, to look through the page and see the Lord, to get to know Him and fellowship with Him and worship with Him. And then through the day, as the pressures come and you feel besieged, do what the psalmist does. Cry out, Lord, save me. (laughs) Save me from the lies. Protect me from those that... uh, a running roughshod over me and others to get their own way. And the psalmist tells us that we will go from strength to strength. He supplies the strength that we need to go through the, the valley of Baca, the place of weeping, and to turn it into a place of springs, an oasis. He supplies what we need. He may not change the circumstances. He may not change the people. He may not stop the lies, but he can keep the lies from penetrating and he can give us the strength to walk through those, those desolate regions and, and be a source of strength to others as well. And again, we, come, we keep coming back to what James tells us. If we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. Let's pray. Father, how, how rich these psalms are. As David puts it, Unless the Lord had been our help, our soul would dwell in silence. When our foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, holds us up. In the multitude of our thoughts within us, your comforts delight our soul. Thank you, Lord, for for using the word to take us out of the tight situations, the restricting circumstances and and leading us into a broad place where we have space and room to breathe and freedom to be what you've called us to be. Help us to take these words seriously. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting about you this summer and, and spending our time uh, in things that really do not ultimately satisfy and, and pay off. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to, to see the word as, as very precious and to use it as a means of drawing us close to you. Thank you for your love for us, your proximity to us. We know that you're waiting for us to respond. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.